before the holidays hit, we, we were into some intense things in the book of Revelation, the book that we're studying. I got more emails and, and all of that from, from the sermon. I mean, it really stirred things up. Um, I had breakfast with a guy, and he was just saying how God in that moment spoke to his heart. And he had regret because he felt it was on a Saturday night, and I opened up for prayer, and he didn't pray. And it was on his heart. I said, you don't have to regret that. There's always opportunities. And in fact, I said, Jason, just to connect us to the past, um, to the last sermon, because we're going to be stepping into some of the same things today, um, why don't you just share what's on your heart? So Jason King, come on up here. You guys welcome Jason King. Um, to kind of get to the point, I only got a few minutes, so I'm going to talk about something that uh, really came up. So today we're going to look specifically in Revelation chapter 2, um, the letter that's written to the church at Thyatira. By the way, I've always wanted to pay, so I'm just going to do it anyway. So one of, the, one of the things that it talks about in verses 20 and 21 is it says, But this I have against you, for you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. For I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual morality. And if you guys remember a few weeks ago, Rod talked about a story from Numbers chapter 25 about a guy named Phineas. And the short of that is he was a warrior for purity, and specifically for purity that honors God. He, he has like three paragraphs given to him in the Bible. And specifically what it says is Phineas the zealot, a zealot after the honor of God. And... Um, you guys, can, I want you to go and read that in your own time to learn what that's about. But the reason why I bring those up is because this is a heavy talk. This is a heavy talk today that Rod's going to bring about sexual morality, about eating food sacrificed to idols, and you'll learn what that means. But specifically, it's about deception and the fact that in our lives and our cultures, and I want to challenge us, including myself in this church, that we've allowed ourselves to be deceived bit by bit in what sexual morality really means and what God says about it in the Bible. So when you look at all the letters written in the New Testament that Paul writes, that um, he writes to the church at Ephesians, and in chapter 5 he says, um, so protect yourself from de deception, do not be deceived. He talks about in Acts chapter 15 to the letters um, to the church at Antioch of what it means to, to be a new Christian, what it means to be an old Christian, things to live by. And so when you have a piece of paper that you're sending out to churches, you only get X amount of words to put. And how come in all these letters all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, we see sexual morality come up, flee from it, abstain from it, be as far away as you can from it. And so what I want to challenge us today is to really look at what does that mean in our lives, in our cultures. Because if I bring up pornography, the Greek word porneia is what sexual morality translates to. If I bring up sex trafficking, all you guys I think would agree that that's sin and that's evil and that's bad. But what about the movies that you watch? What about what you do on your phone, what you do on your computers, your tablets, what the, you listen to, the books that you read? the conversations that you partake in, the places that you go? Has there been a level of tolerance of losing what it means to be a zealot, losing what it means to be distinct and allowed yourself to say, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church. I honor God. I, I honor my wife in my marriage. I do, I, I'm pure because of her. I'm pure as a single man or woman for the person I'm going to date. I'm pure for my son or my daughter. Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that our first motivation to be pure is for ourselves, for our own bodies, or those closest to us. It first and foremost says we are pure because in Matthew 5, 8, in the Beatitudes, in this list Christ gives to people, the rules to live by. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So pure in heart is where this starts. The, the motivation behind purity doesn't start with the person next to you or the person that you care about or, or 
not wanting to give yourself to something because you know that it's wrong. It should start first and foremost because you know that's what brings you closer to your Savior. And so what I would just want to challenge you guys as this, as this message is delivered is to ask yourself, have I allowed this to slide bit by bit? Do people who know me, do they know that I don't go to those movies, that I don't read those books? Not because, oh, I'm a Christian and, you know, we just don't do that. But to say, I don't believe that this is right, that sexual morality has a place in my life because it prevents me from seeing who God truly is. And so before I pray for you guys, pay attention. I'm not going to spoil what Rod's going to say. But look what happens to the church at Thyatira. And ask yourself, if for Crossroads, where does this go? If we don't talk about this, if we don't address this, ask yourself in your family, what eventually happens after a generation? So let's pray. Jehovah Nisi, I, I want to uh, first and foremost pray that uh, you be a banner over this church, you be a banner over Rod as he speaks today, that he would just speak from, from your words and your heart, Father, that uh, with the fire that consumes him, Father, that we would just, uh, we'd be touched, that we'd be moved, that we would question the things that we um, might have let slid and taken for granted, Father. I want to ask that um, through this time, it's, it, it could be hard, it could be hurtful, it could take some, some honesty. And so I ask that um, you take care of our hearts, you nurture us, you let us know that despite what we've done, that you died for us so that you could be victorious before any of these battles even got to our doorsteps. So Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to just share my heart and just pray that you would spurn others to do the same, that you would spurn them to, to share with their spouses, their brothers, their sons, their daughters, Father, their friends that they would go to their workplaces and not shy away from being pure because you have called us to do it, to look after your own heart. So I thank you, Lord, and just be with us this morning. In your name I pray, amen. I'm telling you, when I, when I hear that, that rings true in my heart. And my heart wants to hear that. And I, I want to be a church that wants to hear that. Um, stakes are high. I think we'll get into that a little bit this morning. Uh, we are the locker room church, as someone once coined Crossroads, and I love that because um, we come here with purpose, we come here with intentionality, we, we gather like this uh, because we want to be a church that's in the game and not just playing games. Um, so we are in the book of Revelation. If you're new here, our, our approach has been one that is how we approach the rest of the Bible. Rather than looking at Revelation and trying to figure out how the things in this book connect with things in our world, uh, we're recognizing that this book was first written to an original audience for a specific purpose. It was written to seven specific churches in the province of Asia. Um, and, and, and for the purpose of encouraging them as they were about to undergo this ordeal. And the ordeal was significant. The emperor declared war pretty much on Christians in this area. And the persecution was going to become severe. And so uh, God, through John, is pastoring them through this. And one of these seven churches is the one we're going to look at today, uh, to the church in Thyatira. And uh, let's, if we can, stand for the reading of God's word. These are the words of Jesus to the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your works, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. 
and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The same thing Jesus said to the church in Pergamum. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all her children will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your works. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery. It's an exact quote from Psalm 2. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star, the Christ and his authority. Whoever has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's God's word. You may be seated. Just first, I uh, give a little bit of background here that I think pertains to this specific letter uh, to the church in Thyatira. Uh, first of all, this is one of the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. Um, if you remember, that province of Asia um, is in what is today uh, Turkey, and it's in that world, the place where east meets west. And so in that sense, there we go, there, there you see the map. And all those churches are right there in Asia. You also see uh, Galatia right next to it. So Galatians is written to this area. First and second Peter is, is, is written to this entire province. Um, because this is where the church is starting to take root and grow. And it's also where uh, the emperor is taking notice of that and wanting to do something about that. Um, another thing just to know about this, this, this province, um, it's highly cultured, it's advanced, it's prosperous, uh, thriving cities are every, everywhere, these, these cities are pri- primarily Greek cities that are adorned with stadiums, theaters, large outdoor shopping malls, spas, hospitals, um, all the finer amenities of life, running water, Temples everywhere. I mean, just imagine right now if in Grand Rapids, um, on, on almost every corner would be a temple to another god. And that's one thing that we haven't talked about when we talk about uh, the context in which this, this letter revelation is written. We've talked about the, the challenges and the pressures from the emperor um, for them to, to worship Caesar and, and, and not Christ. But we haven't talked much about just the paganism. The full-blown paganism that permeated this part of the world at this time. And here's what's so amazing to me. Not only was Christianity born into this, not only did it survive it, the church thrived. So that in just 100 to 200 years... It won the Roman world for Jesus Christ. 
And that's, what we're, that's why we're getting into the shoes of, 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 of first century rather than just running this book to, to our world today. Let's, let's learn what it meant to them in that day. Now, now the city of Thyatira itself ha- has some unique features that I think play into this letter. First of all, it's the smallest and most insignificant city of the seven churches in Revelation. It's a manufacturing city. It's a, it's a mini Detroit or, or, or a mini Milwaukee um, it's, it's famous for the production of automobiles. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, actually, it's famous for the production of, of, of textiles, um, namely a specific one, uh, purple cloth. And, and purple cloth in, in the Roman world was uh, very difficult to produce, but it was also in high demand, um, especially by the elites. Um, in, something interesting about, about just wearing purple cloth in general um, the, the Romans said that only three groups of people are allowed to wear purple. The emperor can wear purple. Senators can wear purple. And then the equestrian class, which is the elites of the elite. In fact, you had to prove by how much money you had in your bank account that you actually were an equestrian. Only these three groups of people could wear purple in the Roman world. What's also interesting to me is that the Jewish people dominated this industry. They were experts in producing purple cloth. In fact, they grew very rich off this production. And and then that connection isn't hard to to make because God instructed uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before Rome is wearing purple... He said to Moses, I want my people on their tassels to have a purple thread to remind them that they are royalty because they belong to me. So they became experts in in, in producing purple cloth. Now the first hints of Christianity actually coming to Thyatira is in Acts 16 where Lydia, it says Lydia from Thyatira, also, it says about her, a seller of purple. See how all this stuff just fits together. Um, in fact, Lydia is the first recorded European convert in the Bible. She's probably named like so few people are actually named. It's usually, you know, the jailer or it describes a person, but very rarely does it give people names in the Bible. But she's, she's probably the owner of a Fortune 500 company. And what Acts is showing us is that the gospel is going to the utter ends of the earth and it's infiltrating all levels very early on of the whole Roman society. Now just another background piece that I also think pertains to this letter. Um, the Roman economy was, was pretty much driven by guilds. More guilds were found in Thyatira than any other city in the Roman Empire. Guilds are, are what we might call unions today. Um, you, you needed, especially in a, in a place like Thyatira, to belong to a guild uh, because the guild provided protection, it provided leverage for your craft or for your industry. But here's what I also want, us, want you to know. The guilds were more than what unions are today. You also have to add the element of fraternity. Because the guilds were also, they not only helped you in your craft, but they also gave you your whole social life. They had the guild feasts and the guild 
uh, sponsored uh, events. Um, they had, you know, let's get um, a, a, a box at the chariot races, let's tailgate, and, and you would go with your guilt. I mean, it became a person's life. It, it's the only way a person could really find their place in the Roman world, really, not just economically, but also socially, was by being, belonging to a guild. Now, every guild had its specific god, and so if you're a card-carrying member of this guild, you were expected to worship this god, because the worship of this god is what brought the god's blessing and the god's uh, fortune to, to, the, to the business. I want us to feel the, the, the struggle. What do you do? You give your life to Jesus. And you're in a guild. Can you belong to that guild? Do you have to give up that guild? If you have to give up that guild, you're giving up your life. This is the cost. But now read the words of Jesus to this church in Thyatira. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Literally, in, in, in the Greek, it's the word works. Wherever you see the works in the New Testament, but I think because uh, so many Christians today want to say it's all grace, 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 and that our works don't matter, um, even the NIV wants to translate that word works out of it and, and replace it with deeds. But our works, while they don't save us. I mean, Christ is the Savior. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. But when we experience that salvation, how we live shows who we belong to, who we worship, who our allegiance is to. Because really, that's what works is. Works is how we live our lives. Peter writing, uh, to the churches in, in Asia in this same area says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your works and praise God. That sounds just like Jesus too, doesn't it? I mean, why wouldn't it? He followed Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus said, let, let your light shine before men because you are the, the light of the world. So, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works, how you live. And praise God. And Jesus now in this letter says, I see. I see your works. And see, this can either be a, a good thing or, or it can be a scary thing. Especially when you consider verse 18, how Jesus is described. I mean, Jesus, Jesus, it says, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus doesn't just look at us. Jesus sees through us. In fact, later in this letter, he says, I'm the one who searches the heart and the mind. He sees right to our heart. He sees Jesus says to this church, these are some of the things that I see. I, I, I see your love. I see your, your serving. 
In fact, the, the word for love there is the Greek word agape. The Greeks had three or four different words for love. They had the word eros, which is their word for erotic love. They had philos, which is uh, their word for brotherly love or friendship love. But then they had this word agape, which was the highest form of, of all Greek love. It's, it's the love of self-sacrifice. I mean, Jesus describes this kind of love when he says, greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. That's agape. Jesus says, I see, I see your agape. He says, I see your serving. And, and, and this serving isn't just their, their self-serving. It's, it, it, it's, it's more of the nature of foot washing and, and, and all the things that could fall in the bucket of foot washing. He's like, I, I, I see that. And see, then when you combine uh, that Jesus sees their love and their servants, service also with, with this faith and perseverance, um, it, it's not hard to discern what's going on in the church of Thyatira and, and how this church became a force for God in, in that city. Because perseverance itself, it, it, um, it, it assumes difficulty and hardship it, it's this idea that in the midst of, of, of great difficulty, great pain and suffering, you stood strong. And so it's not hard for me to conclude that these pagans who gave their life to Christ had to leave their old life. They had to leave their guilds. And, and, and you have to ask yourself, well, well, well what happened and, and, and how could they do this? Well, well, the church became its own guild. The church became its own union. The, the church became its own fraternity, but of a much different kind. Uh, when you look at how the guilds functioned in the, in the Roman world, I mean, uh, they looked just like Rome itself. They, 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 they carried out Rome's whole value system. For instance, if you wore purple and you belonged to a guild, you were treated like a king and a queen. If you were, if you were rich and, and you belonged to a guild, you, you had all kinds of perks and privileges. If you were a commoner and belonged to a guild, yeah, you could, you could participate, but you'd always be at the end of the line. You'd always be at the end of the table. And if you were a slave, which estimates one out of four people in the Roman world were slaves, fell into that class, you weren't even allowed in the door. And if you want to know how did the church win their world for Christ in under 200 years, uh, now we're stepping into um, how, how the West was won for Christ. Because what the church did is it hit Rome, glorious, mighty, powerful Rome, in its Achilles heel. It turned the whole Roman social order upside down. I mean, imagine if, if, if you're just a, um, um, some pagan citizen living in Thyatira and your co-worker says, hey, Come to my love feast. Come to my agape feast. That's what Christians call their feast. They, they, they had their own guild parties going on. And all of a sudden, you, you, you go to this thing, and, 
and all of a sudden you're just like blown away where you see the first making themselves last so the last can be first. And you see the exalted humbling themselves to exalt the humble. You see the rich making themselves poor to make the poor rich. You see the strong who use their strength to make the weak strong. Or you're a slave. And someone says to you, come to our, come to our love feast. And, and, and you get to the entrance of the door and you're probably like, do I get to go in? Like, come in, come on in. And you can't believe how you're treated. For the first time in your life, you're, 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 you're not treated like a slave. You're treated like a king and a queen. And maybe at some point in the night, you're, you, you're sitting somewhere, and all of a sudden, this person dressed in purple comes right before you, takes off your shoes, and washes your feet. Just how. And the church wasn't just doing this to be different. It was rooted in the fact that there's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither male nor female. Slave or free, for we are all one in Christ. And they lived it out. And in doing so, they hit Rome and its Achilles heel. And see, this is where it matters. It, how we live matters. And, and it's not, it doesn't just matter because Jesus sees it. But the, but the advancement of the kingdom of heaven us putting Christ on display for who he is um, through all, it, it matters. And we can still hit our world, which is more like Rome than it's ever been since Rome, right in its Achilles heel. If we can have the Christ in us, the Christ in us, the hope of glory, and have that lived out through us. And I love the Old Testament meaning of righteousness. And I'm not beating anybody up in my tradition, uh, but no one in my tradition ever gave me the Hebraic understanding of the word righteous or righteousness. It's, it, it's Zedekah, and, and, and Zedekah simply means to disadvantage yourself to bring advantage to another person. And that's all rooted in God's heart because that's exactly who God is. That's exactly what God did. Uh, he, all his advantage, he disadvantaged himself to advantage us. Now here comes Jesus' critique. It stings. Before I even read it, I want to just say this is... this. This isn't a judge in a courtroom talking to someone who's guilty. This is a father talking to his children who he loves. This is a husband who's jealous for his wife saying these things. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food offered to idols. Same critique, isn't it? If you were here last time, we talked about Pergamum. Same, same critique. The only difference is that uh, he called this false teaching that arose in Pergamum, um, causing them to go soft on sexual immorality and uh, food. He called that Balaam. And now he's calling those same two things Jezebel. That's so Jewish. To just label something as Balaam. That's Balaam. Or, or that's Jezebel. Uh, because if you know the stories, both Balaam and Jezebel both claim to be prophets. Uh, they were both false prophets of Baal. And, and since we're looking at Jezebel this week, Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. But as, as a princess, she was also a prophet priestess in, in the cult of Baal. So when the Israelite uh, king Ahab marries her... Uh, Jezebel brings that whole cult of that form of Baal worship to the nation of Israel. And it's not that Baal worship replaced the worship of Yahweh at this time. It was simply added to it. Which is why Elijah, who sees how pervasive Baal worship has become, uh, called the whole nation of Israel to revival to Mount Carmel, where the whole showdown occurred. Uh, between Baal and Yahweh, and he started the whole thing off with this whole thing. He says, why do you waver between Baal and Yahweh? You got one foot firmly planted in Baal, you have another foot firmly planted in Yahweh. Because here's what was going on. It's not that uh, Baal worship replaced worship of Yahweh. Uh, They were still worshiping and going to church on Sundays, but they were worshiping Baal throughout the week. See, and this is what false teachers do. They are very creative in in blending Baal with Yahweh. Especially in those, those places of tension where we feel that our culture is opposed to God, or where God is opposed to our culture, what, what a false teacher is good at doing is, is remedying that, te- that, that tension. And the way they do it is by softening what God's word has to say. So that culture can be adapted into it. Like the snake in the garden. Did, 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 did God really say that? Now listen, this is, a, this is a big thing. This is a frightening thing. That when we can start the attempt of conforming our lives or our culture, sorry, that we can conform our, our, our God to our lives and our culture when it's really supposed to be we are conformed to him. Maybe this is just me talking right now, but I feel like Christians more and more today, in the West, let me even qualify that, not throughout the world, but but in the West, we've become pretty gutless in these tensions. And then I look at the first century Christians and how being a Christian actually cost them their lives. 
And yet we're doing everything we can to maintain our lives and our relationship with God at the same time for the sake of comfort. I mean, even just these, these guild feasts themselves, to, to enter a guild feast, to get past the bouncer, you had to offer incense to that particular guild's God. And then the, the entertainment that night at the feast would be highly erotic, and it wouldn't be just things for you to look at, but oftentimes it would get to the point where, where, where it was orgiistic and, and, and you were called to participate. And then when it came for the menu that night, I mean, we, we just know this from our history books, um, they gorged themselves on meat. And that meat came from the temple of the God that was worshipped in the guild. And essentially what Jezebel is, is it, it, it's a false teacher who's saying it's okay to belong to a guild and to participate in the guild feast and still be a Christ follower. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that. And last time we looked at, at how the church of Pergamum tolerated unbiblical sexual practices, today we're going to look at how Thyatira went soft on food. Now, now food, I'm just going to tell you right now, we, this is a hard thing for for us to relate to, but there's a lot of application. Let me just step into the world of that day. The way that meat was processed, almost all meat in the Roman world was, first of all, taken to the temple. It was, the, the animal was taken to the temple. It was, it was sacrificed. It was offered to a god, um, butchered. The food then was processed. The priests and priestesses of that temple got the choices cuts. And the rest of it then would have been sold in the market. Now, in your mind, just right now, is it okay then to eat that meat? I'll be the first to say, like, this is not something that... that, that, that we can really relate to. Our, our meat just isn't processed that way. It's not going through temples um, and, and, and being offered to gods and then brought to, to, to the marketplace or, or to the meat locker. But maybe um, I can put it maybe in, 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 in light of something that might be a little bit more understanding because what we're asking here, is this a black and white issue or is, is it complex? Is it ever okay to have sex outside of marriage? I had two or three people in the first service just yelled out, no. What if you're a single mother and you're so poor and the only way you can feed your starving child is through prostitution? Now, I'm not going to answer that question, but I just give this example to show the complexity of things. And see, here the, the, the issue of eating meat offered to idols is, is treated as very black and white, but, but, but there is a complexity to the whole thing. And the reason I can go there is because Paul goes there. 
And I wanted to go around Paul and what he says about eating meat offered to idols uh, because it just makes this thing really complex. But then I started thinking I can't do that because that's also part of the Bible. And someone this week might be re reading 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 and being like, wait a second, Jesus said this, but Paul said this. And here's what I love about the whole thing. They're dealing with something that we can't really relate to, but it's so fun to have a window into their world as they are dealing with something and wrestling it through. And sometimes it looks black and white, and sometimes it looks complex. And Paul shows us the complexity of the thing. He, he doesn't just provide a do this or do that when it comes to eating meat offered to idols. He, first of all, deconstructs the whole issue. And in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, he says, what's an idol? He says, it's nothing real. It's a figment of the imagination. Then he says, in the next uh, verse 8, he says, and what is food? And he concludes that by saying food doesn't have any spiritual pro properties that make us more or less spiritual. And then in the verses that follow, he, he addresses this whole thing from an in-house perspective. When Christians are eating with Christians, he says this. He says it's okay to eat meat offered to idols. Unless it offends another brother and sister. Now, that latter part I especially like because this applies to so many things today. I mean, it applies to the things that we consume, are allowed to consume, shouldn't consume. It applies to clothes and what we should wear, what we shouldn't wear. It applies to the cars we drive, the houses that we, we live in, the neighborhoods that we reside. Um, it it re applies to politics and how we should vote or not vote, um, how we are to live out our sexuality, um, our, our being single, being a widow, how, how, how does that get lived out? How do we do race? How do we do ethnicity? How, how do we do school for our children? Is it black and white? Or are these things complex? And what Paul says, it's, it's, it's okay, but don't, do it if it offends another brother and sister. And, and that part I especially like because, you know what, when we belong to the family of God, it's just that. We're not just a bunch of individuals where we get to just exercise our rights. And, and in areas where you feel freedom but someone else across the table doesn't share that freedom, respect that. But Jesus condemns the, the eating of meat. Paul seems to be okay with it. With it. And it, it's like, now what's up with this? Paul is just showing us the complexity of the issue. But I'm so glad there's 1 Corinthians 10 because after showing us the complexity of the issue, Paul gets very black and white. But here he's talking about it from the perspective of Christian when you are eating with, with, with your pagan neighbor. And here he changes from food being just food to food being more than food because an idol, too, says Paul, is, is, is more than just a stone or a rock, but there are demonic associations with that. And he says you got to be careful with all of this. But then his next thought is, he's like, but don't get paranoid and go, don't go start doing all a witch hunt on this stuff. It's fascinating. But then here's the, the clear word from Paul when, to conclude it. He says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience, 
But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for your sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. And I'm not referring to your conscience, but to the conscience of the other person. In other words, what Paul is saying, uh, eat it until some, and, and don't ask what you're eating. But if someone says, do you know that you're actually eating meat that was offered uh, to the God in that temple? At that moment, what Paul's saying, that's a deal to someone. Now it's a deal to you. Don't you dare eat it. But what you see going on in Paul here, and, and it's, I think, the deeper issue, how do we relate to our pagan world? When are those times when we are to fully identify with it, and, and when are those times when we are to stand against it? And sometimes this is black and white, and sometimes it's complex, and sometimes the black and white folks in a church will, will start a whole new church because their church is looking at it, the complexity of it. But see, this is where I want to go back to Jesus. And I want to look at how Jesus related to his world because, um, first of all, Jesus fully identified with his world. He loved it. He embraced it. He did life with it. He incarnated himself in it. It says Jesus ate and drank with sinners. He was given the label of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now that's not to say that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton. That's more to say, do you see how much Jesus identified not just with his tribe and people who he is comfortable with. He identified with everyone. But then there's also those times where, where Jesus clearly stood against his world. I mean, when he's going into a temple and throwing things all over the place, imagine if I start doing that right now. He's standing against his world. I mean, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels of Jesus standing against his world is that woman who's caught in adultery. And that whole time, he's just sitting there. He's writing in, in the sand as his accusers have now have rocks in their hands, and they're about ready to stone her. And it comes that moment where Jesus just stands. And he stands to say, I'm standing with this woman. And to stand with this woman, I have to stand against you. That's beautiful. Are we standing against our world? And how are we doing it? And see, sometimes not only does Jesus identify with the world fully, sometimes he stands against the world, but sometimes Jesus just absolutely transcends his world. I mean, when you read carefully the whole Sermon on the Mount, that, that is radical teaching to his disciples about how disciples are to transcend our world. He says, you've heard it was said this, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, and those statements that Jesus says when I say to you are, are ways for us to transcend our whole world. The cross. That is the king sitting on his throne Raining. 
and ruling. That's Jesus transcending the world. It's complicated. You know, for us, going back to food, food it just seems very inconsequential. But yet, when you look at the biblical story, God asks his people to stand against their world in terms of food. He, he gives specific instructions on, on how to eat kosher. And see, kosher isn't just for, for God's people what they can and can't eat. It's, it's deeper than that. Because what you can and can't eat oftentimes also determines uh, who you can eat with, the kind of places you can go to, to eat your food. I mean, just ask anyone today who has a gluten-free diet or, or one of these special diets today. It, it's not just about, I can't eat this, I can't eat this. It affects your whole life. I can't go to this gathering because I'm not going to have gluten-free. I can't be here because it's not gluten-free. And that, that same thing is going on with the whole kosher thing. Because the whole essence of God's call to his people is I've picked you, I've chosen you so that you can be set apart To be different. To be distinct. This is what holiness means. God's saying, I want you to be distinct. I want you to be holy as I am distinct, as I am holy. Which is why God gives his people very specific instructions about the most basic things. How they're to dress. How they're to eat. How they're to work. How they're to rest. How they're to live. How they're to relate to other people. Be holy as I'm holy. And when you look closely at it, uh, this holiness, this distinctiveness is not to be used as a weapon to beat our world up, but it's to be used in life-giving ways to serve our world. Our world needs for the church to be distinct. And see, now hear what you have in the New Testament. As the gospel is going into pagan places like Greece and, 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 and Athens and, and places like Rome and Pergamum and, and Thyatira, you have all these pagans, these Gentiles who are coming to faith. And here's something that needs to be figured out now. The, the, the question becomes, how Jewish must these pagan Christians become? And so they have this whole council. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. The council consists of all the disciples. Paul's there. Barnabas is there. James is there. All the church leaders are there. And they're asking this question, how Jewish must these Gentile believers become? And the, the council essentially concludes that Jewish, no. Distinct, yes. In fact, they place just a handful of requirements on the Jewish believers. And so many Christians think, see, God doesn't care about how we live our lives. Um, you know what the first two are? First, no eating food offered to idols. The second, they must refrain from sexual immorality. 
And see, anyone who thinks that this council just made it easy on the Gentile believers, they really don't understand the culture because they just hit these Gentile believers right where it hurt. I mean, for them who are steeped in paganism and a pagan lifestyle, all of a sudden in the moment they have to give up sexual immorality and to give up meat offered to idols. I mean, it cost them life in the guilds. It cost them socially. It cost them financially. It marginalized them from their families. It hurt. And now you have a teacher in, in Thyatira who says, you know what, all this stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter how you live. It's okay for you to belong to guilds. It's okay for you to participate in sexual immorality and to eat uh, meat offered to idols, which is why Jesus now has to counter that, and his words are so strong. Look at verses 20 and 22. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a teacher, a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and into the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her to suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Jesus is not messing around with the call of this church to be holy. He's not messing around with us. Are we distinct? Or are we just blending in? Are we just accommodating to, to the world around us? Do we, do, do we just look like the world in, in all these significant areas of our life? Here's the deal. The moment we just look like the world around us, the moment we lose our distinctiveness, we are impotent to change the world. Our distinctiveness in Christ, the Christ in us, the hope of glory. If we lose that distinctiveness, it's game over. That's why Jesus said you're salt. Salt is distinctive, and, and it flavors uh, the, 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 the thing that it's upon. Salt also has bite. It, it, it stings. Jesus said you're the light of the world. Light allows people to actually see. But light is also hot. And sometimes I ask, where's the bite today? Where's the sting? Where's the hot? What's God putting on his, what's God's putting his finger on your life right now? It's obviously not meat offered to idols, but there are several equivalents. What idols are, are, are in our lives? What, what idols are we offering ourselves to? What, what, what associations do we belong to that are causing us to compromise? What places are we going that, that, that cause us to live unchristlikely? likely um, what, what, what do we tolerate? 
right now where Jesus, if we heard him speaking to us, would say, you tolerate that? We can't worship God on Sundays and then go out and worship Baal the rest of the week. And sometimes, sadly, the biggest idol in our life is our very own self, how easily we can make ourselves our worst idol. I'm going to tell you what's so scary about this. The biggest threat to, to Thyatira is not Caesar. It's not his declaration of war on Christians. It's not something outside them. It's something within them. It's false teaching. And here's the deal. What Jesus is calling us to, and the stakes are so high here, I think, is, 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 is it's a call to repent. And it's repent or die. Because here's, here's what church history will tell us about the church of Thyatira. By the second century, the church in Thyatira doesn't exist. It didn't repent. It came just like the world. It's done. I want this church to make it to the next century and not just survive, but thrive. I want my kids, grandkids, great-grandkids to follow Christ. That's what's at stake. And here's, 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 what's, here, here's all we have to do. All we have to do is have the guts to acknowledge what, where we've tolerated too much, where, 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 we've, where we have idols in our life, and, and we just have, have the guts to acknowledge those things and to repent of them. Because what we're not talking about here is... is um, being morally reformed. We're, we're talking about being spiritually transformed. That's what happens when we repent. It's not outside-in change. It's inside-out change. I mean, look at the promise of this text in 26 to 28. It says, to him who overcomes, and this is the person who repents, who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Listen, that text he just quoted is from Psalm 2. That text is about the Messiah and the authority that the Christ will have. The nations will be his inheritance. But what Jesus is saying now to the church, that authority that was given to me, when you repent, it's given to you. Which is why we don't have to live lives with, with, with this defeatist mentality. We don't have to live defeatist lives. We don't have to uh, keep falling and stumbling into defeatist choices. We don't have to always have these defeatist attitudes. Woe is me. Woe is the world. I can't change. Nothing can change. We're talking about the power of Christ that comes into our life when we repent. Last night when Jason got up here and said what he said, I wanted the whole service to be done at that moment. Because my own heart just wanted to repent. 
And as, as Christians, sometimes we're, we're, we're really stoic and non-demonstrative. I, I love the Old Testament that when a father lost his son, he literally tore his robes, put sackcloth on. And when a person repented, they didn't just sit in their chair, but they got on their knees for God. They beat their breast. Mercy on me, a sinner. See, the reason why Christ has all the authority is not because he flexed his muscles. It's because he gave up power. It's because he went low. It's because he humbled himself. It's because he made himself nothing. It's because he surrendered. He gave up his life. That's what repentance is. We can either hang on to our life comforts and life as we want it or we can just bow to him say you get all of me because you're my king this morning I want to take communion as a family because I think there's also a time to corporately as a family repent so I'm going to ask the servers to come up right now. This is the meal Jesus offers us. The coming home feast. And the prodigal comes home. And Jesus says, I eat and drink with sinners. We're going to eat this together as a family. We're not going to do it flippantly. We're going to do it corporately. Sitting in your chair for this time is just fine, but also give yourself permission. You want to get on your knees right now. There's all kinds of places in this place for you to just find that posture of repentance. Repentance.